Today on IFS Talks, we have the distinct honor of speaking with Dr. Richard Schwartz. Dick is the founder of the unique and transformative therapy model, Internal Family Systems. For many, a meadow model, a perspective of the psyche, a map and a path to live our lives, a new paradigm and social movement in the world of psychology and beyond. Thank you, Dick, for all that you have done and for being with us today. Thank you, Tisha and Annabelle. It's, it's great to be with you. I'm so honored to have both of you in our community and uh, looking forward to our talk. Thanks much, Dick, for sitting with us today. First of all, I have to say how beautiful and inspiring it has been to see the respect, the admiration, sometimes deep friendship and love that our guests deeply and clearly feel towards you, Dick. It's really amazing and deeply touching. It reveals the love that all those colleagues and authors feel, both for the IFS as a model, but also for you as a mentor, a friend, a colleague that still guides them in many ways. I can imagine this is such a gift for you, but also a responsibility, if not even a burden, let me know. Yeah, it, it can be both. You know, I, I uh, really appreciate you talking, telling me that, and and it's mutual. I feel that for the people in the community, including you guys. I feel very, very blessed to have such a community. And also, like you said, it can be a bit of a burden at times to be a leader. And being a leader in this way wasn't something I was oriented to in the beginning at all. So I've had to kind of grow into the role, which has involved a lot of work with my parts. So, yeah, but it's great to hear. And also, Dick, so many good friends of yours have been with you in this long journey since you started assembling this model, missing those early days. Yeah, I've been very lucky that way. Everybody, most everybody has been quite loyal and unlike other models where people split off and started a slightly altered version, uh, I haven't, haven't had to deal with that. And I, I do think it's because of the connections we all have. We all share the vision of what's possible if this model was really adopted in a big way in the culture. So that also, I think, keeps everybody together and, and thinking the same way and, and working the same direction. Those were days of discovery and innovation in so many ways also. Yeah. Yeah, those early days are, you know, I have a terrible memory, but I don't forget a lot of those times because they were, they were days of sort of uh, awe, you know, awe and could this really be true? Could this be true? What about this one? You know, it was an amazing, magical time. And 
the people who uh, were with me then are, are still, I still feel very close to. Dick, you fully dedicated your life to this field of the helping profession, first as a family therapist, then as the creator and author of this model. It's been a passion and a pleasure, but also a crusade sometimes for you, I, I believe with some ups and downs. Yeah, um, many years where I felt very lonely in it. I had a small group of people who were students and were excited about it. And I could always kind of come back to that little group because I was getting beat up when I would bring it out into the world a lot. So both within the institution I was in, which was the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Illinois at Chicago, which was fairly psychoanalytic department, very influenced by Kohut, Heinz Kohut, who had a big influence in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they had a big, what they call fear of fragmenting people. And they saw yeah. RFS as something that was, that was potentially anyway fragmenting by having people focus on their parts. And so there was a big backlash when I began to talk about it within the institution and people tried to get me fired. And, and then at the same time, when I ran into the model from clients, I was a kind of up and coming family therapist. I had written or co-authored a textbook that had become very popular and, and a lot of my colleagues had a lot of trouble with this because they saw me as a traitor to the cause. Mm -hmm. Family therapy was a kind of polarization away from uh, the lack of context in a lot of traditional psychotherapies, the lack of appreciating mm -hmm. the external context, the family context. Yes. What was it like within your own system during that time? How did you maintain the confidence and clarity to move through all those challenges? I can't say I was terribly self-led back then. You know, I had a part that had uh, served me well as a college football player and in some other contexts that really didn't care what people thought and went toward danger rather than away from it. It was a big protector of parts of me that, that actually did care enormously and carried a lot of worthlessness coming out of my family of origin. And so I would lead a lot and that part could be quite arrogant and polarizing with people would insist on talking about why IFS was so much better than what they did. So yeah, I was I, I can't say I was real self-led back then, but I think if it weren't for that part, this wouldn't exist because I'm basically kind of a shy guy. 
especially in terms of public speaking. I assiduously avoided any opportunity to do that all through uh, high school and most of college. I made it through without having to do an oral report in front of my peers. So. By then I was starting to speak publicly about family therapy. But when I ran into this and uh, got the vision of it, I really had to rely on that part more than anything. And it, you know, it did a good job until I became the leader of a community where that kind of arrogance or defensiveness or uh, just get you in trouble. I was lucky that I had some people in the community who confronted me, who were actually some of the people you're talking about are still with me. They help you with that. What I feel proudest of is that I didn't, you know, blow them off. I actually listened to what they were saying and started working on myself. And uh, that's, you know, been a long journey of trying to heal the worthlessness and get that arrogant part to step back. And mm -hmm. now people comment on how humble I seem. And it's genuine, the product of a lot, a lot of work to get to where I don't need affirmation from anybody. Now I do it from a self-led place. And I think part of the reason that it's exploded in the last several years is because uh, gotten ready. I, I'm ready to be a leader of it now. Wonderful. And those were the times when so many interesting and powerful experiential therapies arrived in the 90s like EMDR, AEDP, EFT, CT, and many more, just were showing up on those decades, 90s, and the new millennium. So those were challenging times with very uh, strong and powerful experiential therapies showing up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... I got to know some of the leaders of those therapies and and I actually collaborated with some of them at different times and uh, spent a lot of time trying to differentiate IFS from them. That was all quite fascinating. We were all kind of uh, trying to figure this out and then gradually went our separate ways, so I, I uh, don't interact that much anymore with people like Susan Johnson. I, you know, I've done several workshops with her together, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with Diane um, Fosha. Fosha, Diana Fosha, and uh, there's a woman named Dini Laliosis, Laliotis who's uh, the MDR person that I collaborated with for a while. All those systems, I think, that you mentioned, 
I would dip in and see what fit with IFS and what didn't and what I could even borrow from them, Mm -hmm. try to give them credit. The system and the person, though, who probably influenced the development of IFS the most, preceded them. And there's a guy named Ron Kurtz. Oh, yes. That Comey. Developed the Comey. Yeah. And early, or I would say even before 1990, he got wind of IFS and got excited because he was a systems thinker. And, mm-hmm. and so he invited me to collaborate with him. I, he and I co-led some workshops at Esalen and then... Uh, I presented at his conference a couple, couple, three times, probably. And that collaboration was hugely influential in many aspects. Mutually influential, that's what you are saying. Yeah. Yeah, many things that uh, are just now kind of second nature in terms of what we do when we do IFS, mm-hmm. you know, collaborated with or borrowed from Hakomi. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, incredibly rich, and a lot of the, the trainers who've been around for so long came from that community. They have a Comey background. The Comey community, yes. Yeah. Dick, you started the, uh, writing, you, you, you wrote, maybe published, maybe eight, ten books. And the first one on NFS was in 1994, so 26 years ago. And then you keep going publishing until most recently, the second edition of the first one, the Internal Family Systems Therapy second edition. Is there any of these titles that you keep closer to your heart that you find most um, influential or most significant for you? You know, I feel very, very proud of the second edition. I really, it took many years. Guilford was very patient with me because I just couldn't get it right. I couldn't get it right. And I felt overwhelmed by the task because as you said, it was 94. Uh, since the last one, 95, and... 26 years ago. Yeah, but so many years had gone by and so many things had changed. Yeah. And so I would start to work on it and I would just get totally overwhelmed. And it wasn't until I had the brilliant idea of, of recruiting Martha Sweezy to... Martha Sweezy, yeah. ...come in and help me that it actually happened because I had been struggling for maybe eight years before. And so Martha came in and is great. She's just a great writer, great thinker, uh, and, and great organizer and gave me deadlines and, and just did a lot of the stuff that I wasn't able to do to make it manageable. So I'm really grateful so it was a huge a huge work yeah and I understood that maybe up to 70% of the book is new stuff yeah 
that might be an, an underestimate. I'm, I, it's really mostly new. So it was again a lot of work together with Marta. Yeah. And is that because the the model has changed and evolved and and perspectives have changed or? Yeah, it's it's kind of um, yes and no because when I went back to the original book, I was both sort of surprised at how much it held up all those years. Some some of the just core aspects of it, and then also how much it changed. But, you know, I added lots of new chapters, one chapter, I think, on burdens, chapter on what we call the laws of inner physics. Uh, that one, a totally new one, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, so there, just, there was so much more to touch on. Uh, I did a chapter on, I forget what we called it, but on sort of on looking at the culture, excuse me, or the United States as a, trauma survivor and what kind of parts does the country have and how, how does that parallel trauma survivors so some of the polarities that exist yeah i mean if you if you think of, of, of our my country anyway uh that way first you you can't miss how many exiles we have we have never had a disparity in income like this So there's much of the country live just above the poverty line. And when you have that many people who have, and there are other exiles like uh, people of color and, mm -hmm. and so on, but when you have that many exiles in any system, you're going to have very extreme protectors whose work is to keep them exiled and also uh, to keep them from rising up or getting triggered. And so those protectors are political institutions or other people? Yeah, the leaders. So precisely, uh, Dick, how can IFS help with this societal polarization that is so prevalent today? I think it can help a lot. I mean, that's what keeps me going. I think if everybody really got that self is in there and it's just beneath the surface and, and got that you don't have to run away from your pain or your shame, you can actually go to it and heal it. So there was a lot more self-leadership in the country in general. People wouldn't polarize because One of the qualities of self is this sort of x-ray vision where you see behind the protectors of your enemy and you see the exiles. Exactly. Yeah. And you feel compassion for them and, uh, and you, you know, you want to work things out. Mm -hmm. And you also, because of that seaward connectedness, You also have a kind of in-your-bones knowledge that you're not separate from that person, that we're all connected. And when somebody else is hurting in our system of humanity, that's actually hurting you, too. Mm -hmm. So all of those uh, aspects of self 
would go a long way to change where we are. Mm-hmm. And self-leadership in our leaders now is really hard to come by. How is some of this playing out as you see the um, situation we're in with the pandemic unfolding? Do you see people get accessing more self or becoming more fearful, more exiled? I think it's both. It's kind of laying bare all, how many exiles there are and how fragile exiles are. How vulnerable. How vulnerable they are, yeah. It's and you know, in any in a trauma survivor, when the exiles get triggered, then the protectors get even more extreme. So but it is, it's, it's um I mean that's the good side of it. It's it's laying bare how much we need everybody. So people who are making fifteen dollars an hour are heroes mm-hmm. now. Yeah. and ideally will be valued a lot more. And the bankers and all the people whose actual behaviors or or work doesn't really contribute anything are uh, also being seen that way right now. And they, they just don't contribute anything. So it has the potential, this whole episode, to really help reorganize our values and and priorities, both individually, because, you know, when you, (laughs) I can say for myself that having, being forced to not travel and to not spend my whole life waiting for the next event that I have to pack for and get in an airplane and, you know, just being forced to be home and relax and, uh, it's both brought to the surface a lot of parts that I need to, to work with, but also made me value other parts of me that uh, like it like this. You know, I feel guilty saying it, but I, actually this has been a really good period for me. I'm guilty because so many other people are suffering. Yeah, a lot. Yes, it's painful. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a growing, growing demand on IFS trainings and therapists, not only in the United States, but also in Europe and even in Asia. Would you be willing to share your feelings towards this evolution, both on what concerns the growing demand, but also the training's evolution concerning its qualities, focus and sophistication, once I understand that IFS trainings are becoming more and more sophisticated, you would agree? More sophisticated? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I I think one thing that's been actually very helpful with the crisis is my brother John, uh, who runs the company, has done a great job of transitioning us to online. So all the trainings now are online. And the uh, trainers did that kicking and screaming, like, You know, I'd been talking about we should do more online, and now you just want people won't have the same experience. It's so much more powerful in person. And uh, 
every trainer I've talked to now who's done it, and says, oh, it's much, much better than I thought. And in fact, this actually can work. I'm excited about it. And they're excited they don't have to travel and, and all that. So uh, I think the outcome of this will be that a lot of the trainings will be hybrids where we'll, we'll do some online and some in person or some that we will offer some trainings where they're all online and other trainings where they're all in person. That's actually going to help us meet the demand you mentioned because, uh, you know, as I go around, there are so many frustrated people. You know, trainings fill up in a matter of hours once they're announced. And, and it's just, it's, it hurts my heart that people can't get it when they want it. So. You are saying, Dick, that somehow um, the IFS Institute is making a movement forward during this pandemic crisis, meaning is evolving to a more blended training, more a mixture of in-person and online. And and you see that as a, a good movement forward, a good improvement. I do. You know, there, there are lots of people who couldn't do the training unless we did it online because uh, they live in a remote area in the world. And, uh, and the online programs will be cheaper. So there are people who couldn't afford to do it in person, both the tuition, but also all the, the travel and the, the housing. This is clearly a, a change in the trainings. And the trainings, as much as I understood, they are happening for maybe 25 years now. Yeah. When did you feel the training machine was hired and tuned enough? I mean, is improving, is still improving, but comparing to these beginning days and back then and the, the days that we are living, how do you compare the training? You know, I don't know that the format has changed a great deal. So in, in a lot of the format I borrowed from Okomi, the demos and the home groups and um, a number of things, and all that's still in place, it seems to me. Yes, and they're so valuable, yes. Yeah. So I don't know that the actual format of the training is going to change all that much. Uh, I, you know, the three to one ratio with the PA, mm -hmm. very challenging in some ways because it's an expensive way to run trainings. And, you know, there's a lot of recruiting of PAs involved and uh, making sure that, that uh, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But it, it also, to me, seems still crucial to have that kind of ratio for people. Yes. Keeps the quality of the training, yes. Mm -hmm. That I also borrowed from Hakomi. Less theoretical stuff or technique stuff, I, I borrowed a lot of the practices they had. So I see that you see this um, evolution of the 
of the trainings mostly as the turning them more available to everyone and the online is helping on that sense. Right. Anabal and I are we're currently in the middle of a training that shifted to online. It was supposed to be in Portugal mm -hmm. this week. And I'm I've been incredibly surprised by how well it it's going and how good it feels. You know, you can have the breakout rooms for the practice groups and still been getting that sense of connection and self-energy. Mm -hmm. Had your group met in person once? Uh... We had met in person once, and so I, I was curious about how it would be if that hadn't been the case. Yeah, from what I'm hearing from people who are doing it without that, Uh, it seems to work just fine. So, you know, it's all a big experiment now. And, uh, you know, this again, without the virus, the experiment wouldn't have happened. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. It uh, created a, a lot of shifts that have been positive. Dick, you, you are still doing so much uh, around all this IFS stuff. What do you love most to do about IFS nowadays? Huh. Well, you know, I'm one of these very blessed people because I, I love most all of it. What is, is trying to orient me now more, my guidance now, is to focus my activity more on things that will bring a bigger bang for the buck in terms of the goals we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. in terms of bringing it to uh, larger systems. So I'm, I, you know, I love the personal retreats so much. It's really hard to let them go. But again, I've been forced to do that. And I'm finding that I love the book I'm writing and working on now. Uh, trying to work on that and uh, and some of these podcasts like yours and you know where I can just reach a bigger audience so I'm just trying to get clear about what post-vaccine will look like for me you know it's there will, there will be some changes I'm pretty clear about that yeah Is there a sense of a path or direction to bring IFS to some of these larger systems that you're talking about? Yeah, we're trying to actively move into, move outside of psychotherapy into other regions. So I've got fairly active collaboration going with some big executive consulting firms. And they work with, you know, not only Fortune 500 CEOs, but also mm -hmm. world leaders. They consult to all kinds of presidents of countries and so on. And so my, my vision, my hope is, this is one example, but indirectly through them, uh, IFS can reach those leaders and we can bring more self-leadership that way. But that's one. You know, we also have several initiatives in the direction of education and 
Uh, I've been collaborating with two Tibetan lamas here locally to try and bring it uh, integrated into Tibetan Buddhism. And um, so anyway, there's a number of projects like that. Very ambitious ones. Yeah, that could reach bigger audiences and and have influence uh, the whole psychedelic movement. Uh, I would love for IFS to be seen as the map for that territory. And uh, I'm going to do what I can to make that happen because that has so much promise as things loosen up in particular. And it seems like IFS is, a, is an incredible model to use with psychedelics, but it's, it's not entirely clear to me why. Is it clear to you? Uh, I think so. You know, I've, I've dabbled myself, so I've done uh, several rounds with ketamine and uh, with MDMA and psilocybin. My take is that each of them in different ways, or each of them accesses different aspects of self. So MDMA, you're just pure self a lot of the time. You just, your protectors melt and your heart opens up really wide. And uh, so you're accessing in particular that compassion, C word. Ketamine, you leave and you enter the non-dual, they call it. And in that state, you feel this unbelievable level of connection to everything. And so connectedness. And then as you come back, you're in a lot more self too. Your, your exiles are a lot more available to you. and uh, so on. So I think we can look at each substance or medicine from that perspective. Also, when there are, you know, bad things happening, somebody seems like they're having a panic attack or you know, there's a, just a lot of uh, reports of people call it post-traumatic psychedelic PTPD. I've seen people following bad trips like that who had psychotic experiences or, and if instead of thinking, oh my God, I'm having a psychotic experience or I'm having a panic attack, they could be reassured that, okay, there's this really scared part that just came up or there's this part that is doing a delusion right now, but it's just a part. And the leader could help them work with that part while they're in the space and separate from it and calm them down. So, you know, that's another application. But there's lots of others that, as I play with the, the, that world, are possible. When people access the aspects of self that MDMA, ketamine, or psilocybin 
grant access to. Do you, um, like after the experience, do you continue to have easier access to self once you've gotten it that way? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's part of the power. So, you know, they're using a lot of ketamine now for depression. And it isn't because it changes your brain so much from my point of view as it does take you into that unity experience, that uh, non-dual experience, and lifts you away from the, the parts that carry all that, those burdens. And you get a different sense of who you really are and what this, this world we're in is, is about, which happened to me. I mean, I, I used to say, I, you know, I believed that when I died, it would be a good, you know, I would go on and it would be good. But after several doses of ketamine, I can say I know that because you kind of go to that good place. And when you come back, as the, the ketamine is wearing off, people kept saying that I was saying, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave, because you really get a sense of how hard it is here. It's very hard to be separated from everybody by these bodies and their boundaries. And you don't realize that until you get away. Yes. You're in that pure bliss, pure love place. And so then you come back with more perspective and, and sort of compassion for yourself. Yeah, makes sense. Is that the same place that our clients go in deep IFS work? Absolutely. I totally believe it is. And, uh, and yeah, it's a wonderful place. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily advocating that these medicines are the answer. You know, we did, Michael Mithoffer did all these outcome studies with MDMA and PTSD and had really good results. So we did an outcome study without any medicine, just with IFS, 16 sessions of IFS and got better results. It was a, just a much smaller scale. It's encouraging. So I'm, I'm saying we don't actually need those necessarily, although I do think that when people get stuck, it can be very helpful to, to have a, an experience or two like that, to get to parts that you wouldn't get to otherwise, systems that are just terrifying to go places. But short of that, I, I don't know that we need that. But so the how, how does Bob Grant's idea Bob Grant is a ketamine researcher he asserted that um, IFS is a psychedelic model how did that land on you? <laughs> I guess so I mean we I think we enter the same world uh, I don't think that uh, I want to attach to that to that label just because I still want to make some inroads in the more traditional bastions who would look askance at that. But of course, of course, 
you don't want all the marketing to be tie-dye? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit of a hippie back in the day, but more of a hippie wannabe. And Dick, what about the IFS Institute? What's the future? What is coming? You know, it's an interesting time for this crisis to happen because we're in the process of a transition ourselves. My brother's been the CEO for 12 years and he's done a great job. And we have grown enormously over those years. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. And we, he's going to transition into a new role sometime this year where he'll be a consultant more. Um, there are parts of him that are, you know, burning out on managing people. He's been doing that since he was in his 20s. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've got a search going for a new CEO. And uh, we're going to look for somebody who can... In the business world, they, they call it scaling something, mm-hmm. who can um, do some of what we've been talking about in this call, which is to, to bring it to bigger venues and grow even more. Not grow more necessarily to be more profitable, but just to have more influence. More influence, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we're going to, I think, put out the job description next week sometime and uh, we have a few possible candidates now already so that's a big big change and it actually feels like a really important crossroads in the history of the the institute so let's hope for the best thank you wishing you good luck thank you So, Dick, thank you so much for having us. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, your model, our model, and our work and our lives. I'm very grateful to the two of you for having this podcast and spreading the word and, and just for all your support in general. You know, I said before how there were many lonely years and uh, I don't feel lonely anymore to have people like you guys on this journey with me, so. Thank you. This has been a, a labor of love for us. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I had, before we got together today, I had a session with a client and it was so powerful I thought like how many therapists are trained how many clients are having sessions every week that are changing their lives and changing the way that they're orienting to themselves and their families and their pain and just before we met with you my heart was filled with so much gratitude <laughs>